Section 16 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by TJP1421. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 16. Daniel Webster. Not many days ago, I saw at breakfast the notablest of all your notabilities, Daniel Webster. He is a magnificent specimen. You might say to all the world, this is our Yankee Englishman. Such links we make in Yankee land. As a logic fencer, advocate, or parliamentary Hercules, one would incline to back him at first sight against all the extant world. The tan complexion, the amorphous crag-like face, the dull black eyes under the precipice of brows like dull anthracite furnaces needing only to be blown the mastiff mouth accurately closed i have not traced so much of silent berserker rage that i remember of in any other man i guess i should not like to be your nigger carlyle to emerson daniel webster those were splendid days tinged with no trace of blue when i attended the district school wearing trousers buttoned to a calico waist i had ambitions then I was sure that some day I could spell down the school, propound a problem in fractions that would puzzle the teacher, and play checkers in a way that would cause my name to be known throughout the entire township. In the midst of these pleasant emotions, a cloud appeared upon the horizon of my happiness. What was it? A Friday afternoon, that's all. A new teacher had been engaged. A woman. Actually, a young woman. It was prophesied that she could not keep order a single day, for the term before, the big boys had once arisen and put out of the building the man who taught them. Then there was a boy who occasionally brought a dog to school, and when the bell rang, the dog followed the boy into the room and lay under the desk, pounding his tail on the floor, and everybody tittered and giggled until the boy had been coaxed into taking the dog home. For if merely left in the entry, he howled and whined in a way that made study impossible. But one day, the boy was not to be coaxed and the teacher grabbed the dog by the scruff of the neck and flung him through a window so forcibly that he never came back. And now a woman was to teach the school? She was only a little woman, and yet the boys obeyed her, and I had come to think that a woman could teach school nearly as well as a man when the awful announcement was made that thereafter every week we were to have a Friday afternoon. There were to be no lessons. Everybody was to speak a piece and then there was to be a spelling match, and that was all. But heavens, it was enough. Monday began very blue and gloomy, and the density increased as the week passed. My mother had drilled me well in my lines, and my big sister was lavish in her praise, but the awful ordeal of standing up before the whole school was yet to come. Thursday night I slept but little, and all Friday morning I was in a burning fever, at noon I could not eat my lunch, but I tried to, manfully, and as I munched on the tasteless morsels, salt tears rained on the johnny cake I held in my hand, and even when the girls brought in big bunches of wild flowers and corn stalks and began to decorate the platform, things appeared no brighter. Finally, the teacher went to the door and rang the bell. Nobody seemed to play, and as the scholars took their seats, some, very pale, tried to smile and others whispered, Have you got your piece? Still others kept their lips working, repeating lines that struggled hard to flee. Names were called, 
but I did not see who went up, neither did I hear what was said. At last my name was called. It came like a clap of thunder. As a great surprise, a shock, I clutched the desk, struggled to my feet, passed down the aisle, the sound of my shoes echoing through the silence like the strokes of a maul. The blood seemed ready to burst from my eyes, ears, and nose. I reached the platform, missed my footing, stumbled, and nearly fell. I heard the giggling that followed, and knew that a red-haired boy, who had just spoken and was therefore unnecessarily jubilant, had laughed aloud. I was angry. I shut my fist so that my nails cut my flesh, and glaring straight at his red head shot my bolt. I know not how others may feel, but sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, I give my heart and my hand to this vote. It is my living sentiment, and by the blessing of God it shall be my dying sentiment. Independence now, and independence forever. That was all of my piece. I gave the whole thing in a mouthful, and started for my seat, got halfway there, and remembered I'd forgotten to bow, turned, went back to the platform, bowed with a jerk, started again for my seat, and hearing someone laugh, ran. Reaching the seat, I burst into tears. The teacher came over, patted my head, kissed my cheek, and told me I had done first rate. And after hearing several others speak, I calmed down and quite agreed with her. It was Daniel Webster who caused the Friday afternoon to become an institution in the schools of America. His early struggles were dwelt upon and rehearsed by parents and pedagogues until every boy was looked upon as a possible Demosthenes, holding senates in thrall. If physical imperfections were noticeable, the fond mother would explain that Demosthenes was a sickly, ill-formed youth who only overcame a lisp by orating to the sea with his mouth full of pebbles, and everyone knew that Webster was educated only because he was too weak to work. Oratory was in the air. Elocution was rampant, and to declaim in oratund and gesticulate in curves was regarded as the chief end of man. One-tenth of the time in all public schools was given over to speaking, and on Saturday evenings the schoolhouse was sacred to the debating society. Then came the Lyceum, and the orators of the land, making pilgrimages, stopping one day in a place, putting themselves on exhibition, and giving the people a taste of their quality at fifty cents per head. Recently, there had been a relapse of the oratorical fever. Every city from Leadville to Boston has its College of Oratory, or School of Expression, wherein a newly discovered natural method is divulged for consideration. Some of these colleges have done much good, one in particular I know that fosters a fine spirit of sympathy and a trace of mysticism that is well in these hurrying, scurrying days. But all combined have never produced an orator. No, dearie, they never have and never can. You might as well have a school for poets or a college for saints or give medals for proficiency in the gentle art of wooing as to expect to make an orator by telling how. Once upon a day, Sir Walter Besant was to give a lecture upon the art of the novelist. He had just adjusted his necktie for the last time, slipped a lozenge into his mouth, and was about to appear upon the platform when he felt a tug at the tail of his dress coat. On looking around, he saw the anxious face of his friend, James Payne. "'For God's sakes, Walter,' whispered Payne, "'you are not going to explain to him how you do it, are you?' But Walter did not explain how to write fiction, because he could not. 
and Payne's quizzing question happily relieved the lecture of the bumptiousness it might otherwise have contained. The first culture for which a people reach out is oratory. The Indian is an orator with the natural method. He takes the stump on small provocation, and under the spell of the faces that look up to him is often moved to strange eloquence. I have heard Negro preachers who could neither read nor write move vast congregations to profoundest emotion by the magic of their words and presence. And further, they prove to me that the ability to read and write is a cheap accomplishment, and that a man can be a very strong character and not know how to do either. For the most part, people who live in cities are not moved by oratory. They are unsocial, unimaginative, unemotional. They see so much and hear so much that they cease to be impressed. When they come together in assemblages, they are so apathetic that they fail to generate magnetism. There is no common soul to which the speaker can address himself. They are so cold that the orator never welds them into a mass. He may amuse them, but in a single hour to change the opinions of a lifetime is no longer possible in America. There are so many people and so much business to transact that emotional life plays only upon the surface. In it there is no depth. To possess depth, you must commune with the silences. No more do you find men and women coming for fifty miles in wagons to hear speakers discuss political issues. No more do you find camp meetings where the preacher strikes conviction home until thousands are on their knees crying to God for mercy. Intelligence has increased. Spirituality has declined. And as a people, the warm emotions of our hearts are gone forever. Oratory is a rustic product. The great orators have always been country-bred, and their appeal has been made to rural people. Those who live in a big place think they are bigger on that account. They acquire glibness of speech and polish of manner, but they purchase these things at a price. They lack the power to weigh mighty questions, the courage to formulate them, and the sturdy vitality to stand up and declare them in the face of opposition. Revolutions are fought by farmers and rail-splitters, these are the embattled men who fire the shots heard round the world. When Daniel Webster's father took up his residence in New Hampshire, his log cabin was the most northern one of the colonies. Between him and Montreal lay an unbroken forest inhabited only by prowling Indians. Ebenezer Webster's long rifle had sent cold lead into many redskins, and the same rifle had done good service in fighting the British. Once, its owner stood guard before Washington's headquarters at Newburgh, and Washington came out and said, Captain Webster, I can trust you. Ebenezer Webster would leave his home to carry a bag of corn on his back through the woods to the mill, ten miles away, to have it ground into meal, and his wife would be left alone with the children. On such occasions, Indians, who never saw settlers' cabins without having an itch to burn them, used sometimes to call and the housewife would have to parley with these savages, impressing them concerning the rights of property. So here was born Daniel Webster, in 1782, the second child of his mother. His father was then forty-three, and had already raised one brood, but his mother was only in her twenties. It seems that biting poverty and sore deprivation are about as good prenatal influences as a soul can well ask provided there abides with the mother a noble discontent and a brave unrest. However, it came near being overdone in Daniel Webster's case. 
for the mrs gamp who presided at his birth declared that he could not live and if he did would alas be a no count but he made a brave fight for breath and his crossness and peevishness through the first years of his life were proof of vitality he must have been a queer toddler when he wore dresses with his immense head and deep-set black eyes and serious ways being sickly he was allowed to rule and the big girls his half-sisters humored him and his mother did the same they taught him his letters when he was only a baby and he himself said he could not remember a time when he could not read the bible when he grew older he did not have to bring in wood and do the chores he was not strong enough they said little dan was of a like belief and encouraged the idea on every occasion he roamed the woods fished hunted and read every scrap of print that came his way being able to read any kind of print and not being strong enough to work it very early was decided that he should have an education it is rather a humbling confession to make but our worthy forefathers chiefly prized an education for the fact that it caused the fortunate possessor to be exempt from manual labor when daniel was fourteen a member of congress came to see ebenezer webster to secure his influence at election as the great man rode away ebenezer said to his son daniel look there he's educated and gets six dollars a day in congress for doing nothing while i toil on this rocky hillside and hardly see six dollars in a year daniel get an education i'll do it said daniel and throwing his arms around his father's neck burst into tears the village of salisbury where webster was born is fifteen miles north of concord you leave the train at boscawan and there is a rickety old stage with a loquacious driver that will take you to salisbury five miles for twenty-five cents the country is one vast outcrop of granite and one cannot be filled with admiration mingled with pity for the dwellers thereabouts who call these piles of rock farms as we wound slowly around the hills the church spire of the village came in sight and soon we entered the one street of this sleepy forgotten place i shook hands with the old stage driver as he led me down in front of the tavern and as i went in search of the landlord i thought the remark of the chicago woman who in riding from warwick over to stratford said goodness me why should a man like shakespeare ever take it in his head to live so far off salisbury has four hundred people you can rent a house there for fifty dollars a year or should you prefer not to keep house but board you can be accommodated at the tavern for three dollars a week there are various abandoned farms round about and they are abandoned so thoroughly that even kate sanborn would not have the courage to their adoption try the landlord of the hotel told me that were it not for the harvest dance the dance of the fourth of july and the party at christmas he could not keep the house open at all of course all the inhabitants know that webster was born at salisbury but there is not so much local pride in the matter as there is at east aurora over the fact that one of her former citizens is a performer in barnum and bailey circus the number of old men in one of these new england villages impresses folks from the west as being curious there are a full dozen men at salisbury between seventy-five and ninety and all have positive ideas as to just why daniel webster missed the presidency i found opinion curiously divided as to webster's ability but all seemed to argue that when he left new hampshire and became a citizen of massachusetts he made a fatal mistake 
The sacrifices that the mother and the father of Daniel Webster made in order that he might go to school were very great. Every one in the family had to do without things that this one might thrive. The boy accepted it all quite as a matter of course, for from beyond babyhood he had been protected and petted. At the last we must admit that the man who towers above his fellows is the one who has the power to make others work for him. A great success is not possible in any other way. Throughout his life Webster utilized the labor of others, and took it in a high and imperious manner, as though it were his due. No doubt the way in which his family lavished their gifts upon him fixed in his mind that a moral slant of disregard for his financial obligations, which clung to him all through life. End of section 16 Recording by TJP 1421